0: Our scripture this morning is Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 20. If you'd like to follow in the Black Bibles, it's page 951, and it's also printed in your bulletins. But first, please pray with me. Father God, thank you for your word. Only in your light can we see light. Illumine the eyes of our hearts to see you more clearly and to walk in your ways. Bless Pastor Mike as he speaks your word to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But fornication and impurity of any kind, or greed, must not even be mentioned among you, as is proper among saints. Entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, Be sure of this, that no fornicator or impure person or one who is greedy, that is, an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be associated with them. For once... You were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise making the most of the time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, Giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the word of the Lord.
1: Sylvia has copies of the manuscript for this sermon if you'd like to have a copy for now. Or for later. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, the Bible often uses the metaphor of walking to describe the way we live. That suggests that our life is a journey, a journey that we make in Christ, with Christ, and ultimately to the place that Christ has prepared for us. That's the outcome we're aiming at, the destination that we want to reach. The passage that we just heard actually uses the word walk three times, though you didn't hear that word a single time. Our translators obviously realized that walking is a metaphor in this sense because they have kindly translated that metaphor for us and they used the word live instead of the word walk. But I want us to sort of feel our way through the contours of this passage as if we were feeling our way along a path that winds through a challenging landscape because that's what our life is is like. And I want to put the word walk back into the three verses where it appears. First in verse 2, where it says, live, or literally, walk in love. And verse 8, where it says, live, literally, walk as children of light. And verse 15, be very careful then how you live, literally how you walk. And as we study this passage, let's remember that the way we walk will affect where we end up, and possibly even whether we get to our destination. This is a serious matter, and Paul's language in this passage has a very serious tone. I hope you can feel that as you read this chapter and as you listen to it. It starts out, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Sacrifice is serious business. But love is where our journey, our walking, starts. I mean God's love, not ours. Our love for God And any love that we have for one another, for anyone, is only possible because God first loved us. But that's not all. The love Jesus showed us by giving up his life for us is the motivation for everything we do. As we walk in love, we do that because he loved us. Or if it isn't the motivation for what we do, it really ought to be. Probably most important, the love God showed to us by giving us His Son is the pattern for us to follow. It's the map for where and how we should walk. We're called to be imitators of God. Those are Paul's exact words. Look at what Jesus did. That's what you should do. That's the way to walk. God's love is the source, the motive, and the means for all we do. Love should be our total way of life. Well, that sounds nice, but you could probably find a sentiment like that on a greeting card. That's pretty vague. Only Paul isn't vague in this passage. Paul gets down to some very specific ways that love can get messed up. And we have to resist those ways that love can get messed up. Paul's worried about some of the ways that our desires and our affections and our imaginations can get pulled away from their focus on God and drawn down to things that are less than God. And if our desires and, and our imaginations are properly aligned, they lead us out of darkness and into light. But And and that brings us closer to God. But if our desires and our imaginations are pointing the wrong way, then they lead us out of light into darkness and away from God. Some of that language comes up in our service of confession. Sometimes I take the bulletin home and I read through it during the week. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If we, walk in, if we say we walk in the light but walk in darkness, we lie and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his Son cleanses us from all sin. So, so Paul's trying to protect us in, in this next section, beginning in verse 3, from ways in which our love gets drawn away from God and it ends up drawing us even away from each other. Let's start in verse three. But fornication and impurity of any kind or greed must not even be mentioned among you as is proper among the saints. Now that, that's a hyperbole. I mean Paul's mentioning those things, so it's it's okay to talk about them. We need to talk about them. We just not need to not talk about them too much. But there there's three important words there fornication, impurity, and greed. The first word in Greek is porneia, and it can certainly mean doing things with our bodies that are wrong, but it doesn't just mean that. And that's important because sin is almost never just about what we end up doing with our bodies. Sin often originates in a deeper place. Sin usually begins in the heart and in the mind and in the imagination And the things that you let grow there. That's why Jesus taught us, for example, that adultery isn't just an act of the body. But it's also something that happens in the heart. And Paul's thinking the same way. Porneia. Fornication is the word, but the Greek word porneia is a little bit broader. It means almost any kind of sexual sin. Porneia is using or desiring a good thing, a beauty That is inherently good and that God created, but using or desiring that beauty in ways that are sinful, either in your mind only or your heart only or with your body and your mind and your heart. Let that sink in for a moment, okay? I don't know how many people in this room have a problem with this kind of temptation, but I bet a lot of us do. And I want to mention something, at least mention it because it's out there, that makes this kind of temptation a lot harder to deal with and to resist. And I'm talking about pornography, which is obviously related to Paul's word, porneia. It's just like the graphic demonstration of porneia, pornographia. I don't know, it's not a real Greek word, but, but... You get the point. I don't know how many people in this room use this form of entertainment, let's call it, but I bet a lot of us do or have. One of the commentaries I read this week told a kind of a funny story that that I think illustrates this problem pretty well. A mother baked a batch of cookies, and she put them away in the cookie jar, and she said to her son, "'Don't eat any of those cookies.'" And a few minutes later, from the next room, she hears her son taking the lid off the cookie jar. Cookie jars are always made of something that makes a lot of noise when you open. I think mothers designed them. But she says to him, Simon, what are you doing? And his answer is, Mom, my hand is in the cookie jar struggling with temptation. And I think pornography's like that. You have desires. They're already there. Almost all of us do. The cookies are in the cookie jar, but porn takes the lid off the cookie jar and exposes you more closely to the thing that already tempts you, the thing that you already desire, and puts it right in front of your face. And Then how could you possibly resist and not give in to that temptation? I don't want to go on and on about this. I don't want to get too explicit, but I will tell you without a doubt that any kind of sexual sin harms you, and it harms the people who are in a relationship with you, either now or who will someday be in a relationship with you in the future. And in the case of pornography, you got to think about this, it also harms the people who were exploited to make the product, to create that image or that video or whatever it is. There's a justice dimension to pornography if that's not, if you need the extra motivation. I don't want to go on and on about this, but I needed to mention this. And there's a real and awful, almost demonic irony in this. Because we were created to love and to be loved. And this way of expressing love, this kind of desire, is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a thing that our Creator put in us. And it's meant to deepen human affection if we use these things, these gifts, within holy boundaries. But wrongly used They have the opposite effect. They undermine and subvert love, and they produce the opposite result. They divide people. They alienate people. They hurt people. So this is one way in which misplaced desire can can pull our moral compass away from true north, send us off in the wrong direction, and as a result, produce real harm in us and in the world, the real embodied world that we live in. I think greed works the same way. Everyone needs stuff in order to live. We need food and clothing and shelter and iPhones. I'm sorry. (laughs) In most economies, people need some things, and they certainly need money. But here's what happens. People end up desiring more than they need. And not just having the desire, but acting on the desire. They actually keep more than they need. They take the goods that God provides and instead of using them in the way that God intends, and you don't have to think too hard about that God intends these things so that we can do good to ourselves and to others. And greedy people or someone who falls into the sin of greed uses the goods God provides in ways that actually end up harming others and harming Themselves. Greedy people end up focusing on the things the Creator provides instead of on the Creator who provides the things. That's why greed is idolatry. Greed perverts our affections, alienates us from one another, and draws our love away from the giver and makes us think only of the gifts. Greed comes out of profound insecurity, But here's the thing, it almost always moves you into an even deeper and more profound insecurity. The most wealthy people I've known have often been the least secure about their material well-being. Greed stems from a natural desire to have enough for yourself and to provide for others. But when it takes hold of your being, it leaves you still always feeling like you don't have enough and depriving others so that you can have more. And don't equate being wealthy with being greedy. The poor have as large a capacity for greed as the wealthy do. So don't take yourself off the hook if you just don't happen to be in the 1%, okay? Greed, like sexual immorality, starts inside us. But, you know, in the, in the imagination, in the heart. But eventually it has external consequences in the world outside of us as well. How many people in this world have been hurt by greed? I think it's the most harmful sin in the history of the world. There's a word that I skipped in verse 3. It's the word impurity. And I think there's something worth thinking about there too. It's a little broader and a little vaguer than sexual immorality, Paul says all kinds of impurity. Impurity is a little different from lust or greed. Lust and greed focus on things that are actually good, but in a way that makes them not good for you, in a way that makes them not produce the good they were intended for. Impurity actually focuses on things that are not good. I think it's easy to understand how how we can desire something that is good in a way or to a degree that is not good. But how do we get drawn in and attracted to things that are not even good in the first place? How do we get tangled, entangled in any kind of impurity? We have to think about not just how desire for good things works, but how resistance wrong things works, or in some cases, many cases, doesn't work, breaks down. Desire can be misaligned and pulled in the wrong direction. Resistance to wrong, rejection of evil, you know, conscience recoiling from something that isn't right, can also be broken down and weakened. Desire is like the steering on your car. Resistance to wrong is like the brakes. Imagine you're At the top of a mountain, and you have to drive down this long, winding road to get to the bottom, and your car starts to pick up speed on those winding roads. And that's kind of how I feel my journey through life is sometimes. If your steering's bad, you're in trouble. If your desires are misaligned, you're probably gonna go off the road, but you're also in trouble if your brakes are bad, you're gonna pick up more speed then you can control. And where do we see our resistance to wrong things breaking down? Where do we see ourselves edging into impurity? What blurs our moral imagination? My mind goes to the realm of entertainment. Let me name two things that, among many possibilities, but the two things that came to mind as I was thinking through this passage last week. Violence and vengeance. I, I'm not real shy about my exposure to violence. I have a much higher tolerance for it than Beth does. We've, in the past, rented movies that I was quite happy to watch and Beth said, I don't, I don't want to watch this. In fact, I don't even want this in the house. I want you to take it back to the video store. There used to be such things <sighs> right now. So, so, so this is kind of a decade-long study I'm engaged in. But I've noticed that my tolerance for violence is actually getting higher. I've noticed also that TV shows and movies are raising the bar little by little. For example, there's one kind of scene that has has become almost a kind of a cliché or a trope in TV shows. It includes most of the following elements. Grim lighting, a rusting and abandoned industrial space, Water dripping somewhere in the background, squalid clutter, say a dirty mattress or some rotting plaster and peeling paint, and almost always some grimy, tattered plastic sheeting hanging down like a curtain, ready to be pulled aside. And of course, eventually, you're going to see lots of blood spattered everywhere, on the walls, on the floor, on the ceiling, on the plastic sheeting, and on the inevitable mutilated body. Anybody? Raise your hand. Have you seen a scene like that? Come on, be honest. <laughs> it's, it's like a trope, right? And sometimes you don't just see the aftermath in the show. Sometimes you see the violence happening. I started paying attention to how this is actually affecting me as the consumer of these images, of this entertainment. I started noticing something a lot of years ago when I went to see the movie Pulp Fiction in the theater. So it must be at least 20 years ago. I don't remember. But it's actually a show, movie I don't recommend watching for a variety of reasons, but I did watch it. And even when I was watching it, even when I was sitting there eating my popcorn in the theater, I noticed the way that this in its way, brilliant movie, not only turns extreme violence into a form of entertainment, but it turns violence into a kind of comedy or farce. When you watch it happen and you actually laugh out loud when the top of someone's head gets shot off by a gun, you become a collaborator in the corruption of your own imagination and your own moral sensibilities. The vengeance motif might be a little less gruesome and a little less overt, but I think it's also a little more common. It might be mainly psychological instead of physical and graphic, but it, it's entertainment that uses vengeance as the hook. And it often models seriously defective human relationships or human behavior, and more to the point seriously defective solutions to evil situations and wrong acts. It's repaying wrong for wrong. Instead of confession and forgiveness and reconciliation and healing, the end game is just payback. How many movies? Action movies, thrillers, comic book movies, and I don't even know about the world of video games. I never play video games, but I I wonder what it's like to to take the lid off that jar and look into it. How many of these have revenge as their centerpiece, as their main storyline, as the thing that advances the plot and, of course, that also advances the box office revenues and keeps us coming back? And it works because it appeals to our sense of justice, but it also corrupts our sense of justice and demeans us. In our entertainment culture, vengeance and violence often form the dynamic duo that we keep coming back for more and more and more of. But it's not just in our entertainment culture. It's in our actual culture. This is interesting to me. Everything I just said about violence and vengeance, I actually wrote before the violence that erupted yesterday in a beautiful neighborhood in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania that I used to hang out in when I was in high school. Vengeance and violence aren't just part of our make-believe entertainment culture. They're part of our world. And I can't help wondering if the increasingly frequent acts of violence in our country are not just a result of the ridiculously easy access to weapons of mass destruction, which I think is a real problem, but also a result of the corruption of our collective imagination through our entertainment culture, which I think is also a real problem. And another way that love is subverted in our culture so that it's really hard to walk in love because it's just not what people do. Obviously, the culture we live in is troubled. We need to focus on how we can live in this culture as Christians without being corrupted by the culture. Because whatever happens out there, we have to be really careful about what happens in here and in here. We have to be careful about what we allow to shape our imaginations, what we allow to enter our minds and linger there. We have to be careful not just about what we do, not just about what we look at, but even about what we listen to and what we say to one another. I I don't even have time to talk about it, but do pay some attention. Reread this passage and pay attention to the ways in which it talks. it, It focuses on how we talk as well as how we think and what we desire. The, the kind of shameful talking and foolish and coarse talking that Paul's concerned about instead of thanksgiving, those things also shape and reinforce our imagination. But let me point out this. I'm, I'm almost done. Paul's main focus in this passage, despite all the negative things I've talked about, is actually positive. It's not mainly about what we avoid. It's mainly about what we pursue. You'll never get anywhere if you just focus on avoiding evil. You need to focus on the positive goods. So the passage certainly warns us where we should not go and how we should not walk. But the main focus is where we should go and how we must walk. Walk as children of light. That's the way to bear good fruit. Nothing that grows in darkness is wholesome. I I suppose there are some nice mushrooms that grow in darkness, but mostly toxic mold and toxic fungus is what grows in darkness. Fruit needs sunlight. The fruit, there's a quote from the passage, the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. That's what we need to pursue. Our way forward as we walk through our life's journey is to turn away from the darkness and Move towards the light. The way forward is to replace the darkness with the light. Instead of coarse talk, thanksgiving. Instead of being filled to overflowing with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instead of foolishness, pursue wisdom. And Paul tells us to be very intentional about this. That's the last walk. Be very careful how you walk. Pay attention to the way you live. Be serious about where your journey is taking you. Walk with a sense of urgency as if it actually matters to you that you get to the place God is calling you to and that you become the person God created you to be. Paul uses a great word in this passage, in a great phrase. It's actually one more word that gets kind of lost in our translation, but it's there in verse 16. Our translation says, making the most of the time. But the actual Greek phrase is much more pregnant with theological meaning and, and a sort of, end of the end of the world is coming soon kind of urgency. Paul says, redeem the time. Buy back this significant moment, this, this kairos, this spiritually present opportunity that we live in right now. That's the sense of Paul's phrase, ex agorazomenoi ton chiron, redeeming the moment, redeem the opportunity that you have. Make the most of what you have and what you can do because the days are evil. I don't think today or really any day, I have to work too hard to convince you that the days are evil. But God offers us a way out of the evil. We're invited to be partners with God in the redemption, the buying back of our lives from darkness. We're invited to do that in the places where our lives touch other lives, and where our life touches God. God has invited us to share in God's own work of buying back the world from the cosmic vandalism that has been perpetrated upon it, redeeming the world. That's God's business. And there's only one way to participate in that work, by walking in love, walking in light, and walking with some urgency and some purpose, and keeping on until we reach the end of our journey to the place where God is directing us and where God is waiting for us to welcome us. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your love, the example you set, What better reason could there be to obey you and to seek you that you already showed us everything you have in the way of love you gave us, your Son? Lord, help us as our attention and our affections are so often drawn away from you. We seek the shortcuts, the quick fixes, the quick buzz. and it harms us, and it does harm in the world. Give us grace to make the most of the moment that you have given us and to participate in your redemption. And again, Lord, we ask that you will have mercy on us and on this suffering world. In the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.